We're going to be going through all of John chapter 9 this morning. I want to start with a story I've probably shared before. You know, I was thinking about it. I'm, I think this is my seventh year here. And uh, I, I think around, right around like year five to ten, you start thinking when you hear a story, man, I think I've heard that before. Uh, and then probably from like 10 to 15, as I share a story, you could, you could probably jump in and finish it. And probably from 15 to 20, you see the sermon title and the text, you go, oh, I know the stories he's telling. And you just, you, you know them in advance. I'll try to avoid that. But when I was in high school, I, I can't remember which year, but I had a history class. And in this history class, the teacher had an assignment. We were, I don't remember what period in history we were studying, but he had a bunch of uh, prints of paintings from that era. And he spread them out on the floor. And the class had to come up and walk through the, the paintings and take notes about why we felt that particular painting was a good reflection of the era or what it was reflecting from the era. It was kind of a unique history assignment, kind of creative. Um, really liked this teacher. He was he had a rough class, but he was pretty good at engaging us. There was just one minor issue. We had a blind girl in our class. And so she literally could not do this assignment. She could not walk up and look at the paintings and take notes about how they made her feel or, or what they told her about the era. She couldn't see them at all. As far as I know, she had been, like the man in our story, blind from birth. She had no concept of colors, painting, scenery, anything. She had never, ever seen them. And, and I think at one point the teacher sort of realized what he had just done as he's given the instructions and he kind of caught himself like, uh, hmm, uh, what are we going to do with her? And, and so he said, is there anybody that would be willing to walk with her through the paintings and explain what they are to her? I thought that sounded like an interesting challenge and nobody else wanted to do it. So I thought, sure, that would be a unique opportunity and experience. I didn't really know this girl. This was the only class uh, that she was in and you know, some people say you know everybody in your high school. We were a school of about 2,000, so we didn't know everybody in our high school. I didn't know her at all. I can't remember her name. But she was really sweet, and she was one of those. She wasn't overly self-conscious. She would talk about her blindness. She could joke around about it. So there wasn't that awkwardness. We could just talk. So we got up to the first painting, and I remember saying, well, across the top, I think it was a scene, like like a, a meadow or something. I said, across the top, there's the blue of the sky, and then there's green in the grass and orange, and she was just kind of, and I stopped, and I looked at her, and I said, when I say blue, do you know what I mean? She's like, well, you know, I've heard it described, but I've never seen it. She says, I don't really know what blue is. I don't know what orange is. I don't know what red is. Man, this is going to be harder than I thought. I mean, I can't just describe what the painting looks like because she's never seen these things. She has no way to interpret that. So I looked at it again, and it was a beautiful, sunny picture. And so I said, well, imagine being out in the sunshine and feeling the sun on your skin and and just warming you up. I I said, "Can can you imagine that? She's like, oh, yeah. And there's a cool breeze blowing. It's just enough to be comfortable. And you can smell the flowers. And it's very calm and comforting. And so we would go through and I would describe feelings. Uh, There were some that were more anxious and kind of scary pictures or despair and angst. uh, A lot of blues and grays and purples. 
And, and so I would describe more the feeling or something that she might have been through that was a feeling for her. And it was one of those times in my life that I've looked back on several times and thought that was kind of a pivotal moment for me. I didn't understand it at the time. But to see something through the eyes of somebody else who was unable to see it, to interpret something, to imagine it, and have to change the way I speak and the way I think about something to help somebody else to see it. Today we're looking at the idea of being spiritually blind, unable to see what God is doing. And like many of the passages in John, there's going to be numerous people, and I want you to watch how they interact with Jesus and how they are able to accept or not accept what Jesus does. And there's several layers of blindness in this passage, so I want you to try to pick that out as we go through it. But one of the key things in this passage is that there are those in this passage, and maybe in this room, and certainly in our lives today, there are those who think they can see. This girl that I talked with, she knew she couldn't see. She, she understood that, and she was willing to explain to me what she could understand and what she couldn't. And we could talk about that. But imagine if she thought that she understood what blue was, but when she thought about blue, she thought red. Or, or worse, she thought about red and she thought toaster. I mean, if she had no concept of color whatsoever, then all of the dialogue would have been meaningless to her. When we cannot admit that we are blind, when we think we know and we see clearly, but we don't see clearly at all, we're in big big trouble. Let me just give you an overview of this passage, just just to give you the big picture. It's a very simple passage on the surface. There's a man who was born blind, and he's healed by Jesus, this miraculous, wonderful thing for him and a powerful testimony to those around him. The people can't believe this. In fact, they won't even believe it's the same guy. The authorities are called in, they question the man, they don't like what they hear, they bring in his parents, they question his parents, they don't like what they hear there, they question the man again, and eventually they throw the man out, refusing to listen to anything that he says. And then Jesus catches up with the man again. And Jesus takes this beautiful opportunity to tell the man about himself. And the man believes in Jesus, and the passage, as we'll see, says he worships Jesus. And then it switches back to the religious authorities who think they see clearly, who think they have it all together, and they are unwilling to accept who Jesus is. They are the true blind people in this story. So let's look at the passage. Let's start in verses 1 through 7 and see opportunities. Because I think, as we look at this passage, one of the things that struck me is that there are opportunities in our life for God to work or in other people's lives that we are unwilling at times to see because we already think we've got things figured out. So let me read this for us, verses 1 through 7. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground 
made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. Why was this man born blind? And if I could enlarge that to the question that that usually follows that or, or is incorporated with it is, why do bad things happen? And if I could even make that broader, why does anything happen? It's a big question. The disciples have this question. They assume they've got this figured out. And they're looking at a man born blind and they're saying there must be a reason this guy is blind. Why is it some see but others are blind? And so they ask the common way of thinking in that day, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, they understand some things about the way the world works. And and Scripture teaches these things. One is that all brokenness in the world is because of sin. All brokenness. All pain. All hurt. All of it is because of sin in some way, shape, or form. God did not make the world messed up. Sin did. So it is true that everything bad that happens is because of sin. So that's the first step. They get that. The second thing they understand, which is equally true, is that all sin has consequences. Our sin affects those around us, and others' sins affect us. So sin does indeed have consequences. But the problem here, where they make a mistake, and this is actually, the I would say, the the whole theme of the book of Job, they make the mistake of taking those two truths, everything broken is because of sin, sin has consequences, of looking at a consequence and assuming they understand the cause. If this man was born blind, either it was his fault, and the Jewish people actually had some interesting concept of the potential for a baby to sin in the womb. I know that sounds strange, but they find it in some of the writings of the rabbis to explain situations like this. Somebody must have sinned. Maybe he did something in the womb. So that's probably the the possibility here. But the other possibility is that it must have been his parents. His parents must have sinned, and the Old Testament says that our sin as consequences has an effect even on future generations. So those are the two possibilities that they see. Now here's where they are in error. We do not have the eyes of God. We cannot look at a situation and be able to unravel that always and say this is what caused that situation. Is this man blind because of sin in the world? Well, yes. I don't believe in heaven anyone will be blind. We will all have eyes that work perfectly. The reason anyone is blind is that we have a sinful, broken, messed up world. That doesn't mean it's their individual particular fault or even the fault of the parents. And this is where they are in error. So Jesus explains the reason here in verses 3 through 5. Look at that. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. That's a powerful verse right there. It's also a hard verse. This man was born blind so that God's powerful work could be displayed through him in this moment when Jesus met him and healed him. That's what Jesus is saying. 
Now, what do we do with that? I think we have to talk about the sovereignty of God. What does it mean that God is sovereign? That word means to have ultimate authority and power over everything. To say that God is sovereign is to say that everything is under his authority and, and submitting to his power. It is to say that everything that happens is known by God in advance. God knows everything from beginning to end. There is nothing in all of creation, in all of history, that is unknown or unforeseen by the Almighty God. It says, also, it means that there is nothing that happens that can hinder or change God's purpose and plan. There is nothing in this world that, when it happens, unravels or undermines the ultimate plan of God. When Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God's plan was not threatened. He was sovereign over it. It also means, God's sovereignty means there is, uh, or that God uses and causes things to happen to fulfill his plan. There are times in scripture we can see that God steps into miraculously, powerfully, sovereignly, steps into history, causes something to happen exactly the way he wants it to happen. There are other times that he tells his people, take Israel, Don't do this. Don't worship idols. So we know it's not what he wants. He told them not to do it. And yet he allows them to worship idols. And when they do, he uses the consequences of their sin to work out his plan. He is sovereign over it. He both causes and allows things to happen. And he uses it all to fulfill his plan. Now, here's an important point. It would be easy to take that principle, read it into this passage or possibly into a situation in your life and say, okay, pastor, what what you're saying then is everything that happens is good because God uses it for his plan. And the answer to that is no. There are things that happen that are awful. There are things that happen that are wrong. God using it for his glory means God brings good. It's not necessarily good. I think sometimes Christians, sometimes in an immature way, they take bad things in their life or other people's lives and say, well, it was actually good that this happened to you because look at what God did with it. No, that thing might be horrible. And, and I don't think it helps anybody to just rename it or, or put a label on it that, no, it was good. And somebody in that situation is thinking, this doesn't feel good. And maybe you're in one of those situations right now and you're thinking, this, this, I don't see the good. I'm being hurt. And maybe it's somebody else doing something to you. Maybe it's your own fault. But either way, it's something bad that's going on. What I want you to hear, though, is that that is not all that's going on. God is using that situation. I want us to see the opportunity in those situations to say whether it's my own sin, somebody else's sin, or just the fact that we live in a sinful, messed up world. Either way, in any of those instances, God has the power and the sovereign authority to use it for his good, his glory, our good, and the good of those around us. God had a plan for this moment. In this time, for Jesus to meet this man, to heal him, 
so that this man could not only physically see, but as we'll see later on the passage, spiritually see, understand who Jesus is, and be saved for eternity. He also had a plan so that all those around this situation would watch and see this happen. And it would cause some of them, I believe, to to begin to have some inkling of faith. Others, it's going to cause them to reject Jesus even more. But God had a plan. And it was for this moment and this time. And verses 4 and 5, time is short. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. There's a a corollary to what's going on with the man. And just as I want to apply what happens to the man born blind to us and our situation, so I want us to look at disciple the disciples and Jesus. They're saying God has opportunities in other people's lives. God has sovereignly ordained situations to declare his glory, to show his good works, and he chooses to use us in those situations. There are people in your day-to-day life that are going through through things in their life that God is using for His glory. Goodness. And He chooses to work through us. And I think sometimes we are so afraid to engage in dialogue with someone who's hurting. We're afraid to get together with them because we're so afraid we're going to mess it up. And Jesus is saying, look, time is short. We need to do the works of the one who sent God. You have opportunities to interact with other people, even in their hardest, or their hardest, most hurtful moments, to point them to Jesus Christ. And so Jesus heals this man. He says it wasn't his fault, it was for God's glory. And so he heals him in a unique way. Jesus' method of healing always has a meaning. Here, he could have just spoken. Hey, eyes, open up. See, be healed. But instead, he spits on the ground, picks up and kneads that dust and the spit together to make mud. Yes, it's gross. And takes that and he spreads it on the man's eyes. Now, here's this guy standing there with mud made from spit on his eyes. I I can't imagine that's the most comfortable situation to be in. Had to be a little awkward. And Jesus then tells him, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And John specifically says, and again, I've tried to point this out, when John throws in a little phrase like this, you need to understand it's intentional. He tells us what this word means. This word, the pool of Siloam, means sent. Now think about that. Jesus is sending this man. He didn't just heal him right there. He's doing something to him, and then he's saying, go and wash. This man could have just walked away and said, well, that was ridiculous. That didn't work at all. Wiped the stuff away from his eyes and gone on about his day. And he would have been blind. But Jesus sent him somewhere. And it was an act of faith on this man's part to go and wash in that pool. It was a declaration that he believed in the one who was healing him. But let's take it a step farther. The pool means sent. John, in his gospel, describes Jesus, one who is sent from heaven to us. The word became flesh. We who couldn't see God, 
who couldn't understand who God was, whose vision of God, whose understanding of God is warped and messed up, and we're calling blue, orange, and red, whatever else, we needed somebody to enter our situation to show us who God really is in a way that we could understand. And Jesus, the Messiah, was born in a manger. He was sent from heaven to... This man is being healed by the ultimate sent one. Whatever we go through has potential to be used by God for his glory, our good, and the good of those around us. We need to see those. This man, we don't know how old he was. He was at least 13. That was the youngest he could possibly be because of some other things in his life, but probably even several years older, if not much older. We don't know. But for however many of those years, he had lived blind. I'm not saying every morning we should wake up and say, praise God that I'm blind. This is a great opportunity for his glory. This is a great thing. No, it's hard. And it's good. And we see this in the Psalms. It's good to cry out to the Lord. How long? God, I'm hurting right now. But in those moments to remind ourselves, but God, I know you're at work. I might not see it right now, but I believe that. And I will keep going because I know there is an opportunity for your glory. God is Sovereign. Now, we get into the dialogue phase. The man has been healed. The people see this. Let me read verses 8 through 34. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claim that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. It's a strange conversation. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought him to the Pharisees, the man... Uh, They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son? They asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? We know that he is our son. The parents answered. That's a good answer. Uh, We know he's our son, and we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already or who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why his parents said he is of age. Ask him. A second time they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether or not he is a sinner or not, or whether he is a sinner or not, I do not know. One thing I do know, I was blind. But now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? 
Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses. But as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Do you ever wonder how to share your faith? Do you ever wonder what you're going to do if people have questions? They're going to ask me questions I don't know the answers to. Maybe I should just bring them to the pastor. Maybe I should just bring them to church. Can I just tell you, as, as somebody who studies culture, your friends don't want to come to church to hear the gospel. They don't. That, that way of, of doing evangelism is, is not the best way anymore. Now, I'm going to preach the gospel, and I pray that anybody that comes will hear it, and that it will have meaning and, and impact in their life. You're going to be the gospel to them. You're going to. You are the missionaries. We have that right in our, our membership covenant that we will be missionaries in every situation. You're the missionary. Which brings back the question, what do I say? And what if they ask questions that I don't know the answer to? And this passage is beautiful. This guy was a beggar. He was born blind. He doesn't really know much of anything about Jesus. And yet he is able to stand up to the most powerful religious leaders in the day who knew everything about scripture that there was to know, except what it was actually about. But they knew a lot and he stands his ground. How? How does he do it? He points to Jesus. That's all he does. Over and over again, he points them to Jesus. The crowd wants to know how this is possible. And he simply says, the man they call Jesus, and he says how he did it. He points them to Jesus. Then the authorities bring him in. They have all these these religious, authoritative, law-centered questions. How could this happen on the Sabbath? He made mud on the Sabbath. That obviously is working on the Sabbath. Plus, he healed you. That's equally working. That's two strikes against him. And do you know what they're looking for? They want this man to agree with them. That's what this is all about. They want this man to give them the ammunition they need to go after Jesus. Their minds are already made up. But look at what he does. In in such a difficult conversation, he simply tells them, verse 15, tells them what Jesus did. He doesn't have to explain it. He doesn't have to reason it out. He doesn't have to know all the theological implications. He doesn't have to go into a long uh, sermon on the, the sovereignty of God. He just says, hey, he healed me. He put mud on my eyes. I washed and now I see. They discuss this and they come back to him. They want him to make a decision about Jesus. He says, well, he's a prophet. Possibly the prophet, which would have had messianic overtones that, that maybe Jesus is the Messiah. But at the very least, he's, he's spiritual and, uh, and a powerful man and has some authority. He's a prophet. He's speaking. He is sent from God. Well, they don't like that either. So they call in his parents. Because they want to hear. This is what they're looking for. They want to hear, ah, uh, yeah, he wasn't really born blind. Yeah, we're making that up. Because that would help them out, wouldn't it? That's the truth they want to hear. Or 
They want to hear that this is the wrong guy. No, he's not really my son. My son is still blind. This is somebody else. That's what they want. Have you ever been in a situation where you know somebody's fishing? They want what they want to hear. Isn't it frustrating? So hard. Because you think you're not listening. You don't really care what I say. You just want me to say what you want me to say. And what do the parents say? Now, the parents, I think, are in a different category than the man that was healed. They want nothing to do with it. They, they want to get out of it. They're afraid. They're just trying to protect themselves. So they push it all back on their son. So they bring their son, or the religious leaders in verse 24, bring the son back in. Give glory to God by telling the truth. Man, now they're elevating it to, to God's glory. You better not lie. You better not dishonor God here. Give glory to God by telling the truth. Think of how ironic that is. I love this about John. He brings in these, these, this irony into what he's talking about. Here they think they're glorifying God by what they're doing, and yet this man, simply by saying what he's saying about Jesus that they don't like, he's actually the one that is bringing glory to God. Tell the truth. And then they say again, we know this man is a sinner. You know it's a loaded question when somebody asks you your opinion but already tells you what your opinion should be. It's a rough situation. So the man says, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. Do you see how they're standing on this theological argument, this philosophical argument, this cultural argument, and the man's going, yeah, I don't really know about that. But here's what I do know. I was blind and now I see. Then they ask him again, how did this happen? Now he's on to them at this point. I believe what he says next shows that he knows exactly what they're doing. They are fishing for ammunition to use against Jesus. And he's calling them out. With what he says, he's calling them out. Because there are only two possibilities with this line of question. Either they are sincerely looking to understand who Jesus is and possibly believe in him, or they're unwilling to hear anything negative or, or anything positive about Jesus and negative about what they think, and, and they won't listen to any of it. And so he says, I told you already, you did not listen. Why? Do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And then they resort to a classic debate tactic. When all else fails, insult the person. Verse 28, then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciples. We're disciples of Moses. They're trying to put him in his place. You don't know what you're talking about. They're ridiculing him, berating him. And then at the end, verse 34, you were steeped in sin at birth. They sit in judgment on this man because he doesn't agree with their ideas. It, it basically, they're saying, you were blind because you sinned. It's your fault. You're a horrible, awful person. Now, I gotta say, this is not unlike some evangelistic conversations you might have with people. If you try to tell others about Jesus Christ, some of them will insult you. Some of them will ignore what you say and just stand on some argument that they want to have with you. And I think a lot of us, because we know that might happen, we shy away from it and we say, well, I can't, I can't do it then because I don't know how to engage. I don't know how to debate. And some of you love studying that stuff and that's great. And it's good to educate yourself on how to discuss these cultural and theological and philosophical issues. That's good. But you don't need to know those things to point people to Jesus. What you do is you say, look, here's who I was before Jesus saved me. 
Jesus died on the cross to save me from my sins. And here's what he's doing in my life now. And then, well, oh, yeah, but that's this and that. You say, look, here's who I was before Jesus. Here's how he died for me on the cross. And here's what he's doing in my life right now. You just tell your testimony about what Jesus has done in your life. Friends, you don't have to have the answers to the questions. And if anything, this passage points out, even if you did have the answers to every single one of their questions, it wouldn't make that big of a difference. Because the issue is not really about the questions. It's about being blind and being willing to admit that they're blind. These Pharisees, they didn't know what they were talking about. They were looking at Jesus and had already made up their minds, this is who he is. They ignored all the truth that they were seeing and they stood on, this is what we see, and they were completely blind. This man who was ignorant of philosophy and theology and probably much of Old Testament history, he could still say, look, I don't know about those things, but I know what this man just did for me. Can I tell you one of the best evangelistic tools I think as Christians we have? Go to work tomorrow. Or, or get together with your family and just ask them. Start with a question. How was your weekend? Can you remember that question? It's very simple. How was your weekend? I'm guessing if you ask them that, they'll give you an answer. I'm also guessing, I could be wrong on this, okay? Sometimes it breaks down. They'll probably ask you. And here's what you say. My weekend was great. I got together with my church. And then share with something from Sunday school, from the sermon, from a song, from your Bible reading, whatever. Share something. This was so awesome. And then just keep pointing them to Jesus. Friends, we have so overcomplicated evangelism, it's embarrassing. Evangelism is pointing people to Jesus. You don't have to know the answers. Keep pointing them to Jesus. Finally, At the end of this passage, Jesus makes it very clear that there are two types of blindness going on. Verse 35, Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. Now, now understand what that means. They not only threw him out of their presence, but it probably has a deeper meaning that they were kicking him out of the synagogue. He was no longer allowed to go to the synagogue to worship. This was a spiritual discipline. It was also a cultural discipline. He would have been shunned by other people. They had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, You have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world, so that the blind will see, and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this, and asked, what are we blind to? Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can sin, your guilt remains. I love that first phrase there. Jesus hears what's happened. And then it says, when he found him. Jerusalem's not a a small place, right? And by all accounts, this is going on around the festival of the tabernacle shortly after the end. So a lot of people were in Jerusalem for this festival. It was a busy place. 
I started this message by talking about God's sovereign plan and he has a plan and he uses things in our life for his plan. And that is true. But don't take that to think we're just a pawn in God's plan and he doesn't care about us. Jesus here finds this guy. He didn't just use him for his glory. Oh, that's great. My gospel has been displayed and I don't care about you anymore. He finds him because he cares about this man. He wants this man to be saved. And so he finds him. And he explains to him more than just who healed him, but who the Messiah is. He calls himself the Son of Man. And this man who was born blind sees more clearly than most of the people in the Gospel of John. Because it says he believes in Jesus and he worships him. And then Jesus makes this statement. For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Truth is a double-edged sword. When someone is confronted with the truth of Jesus Christ, they might realize that they've been wrong all along. That's the difficulty of sharing the gospel. We must first admit that we are wrong, that we are blind, in order to accept the truth of Jesus Christ. I think it's one of the problems among Christians today that we have changed the gospel to say you never have to admit that you're wrong. You don't have to say that you're a sinner. You can just add Jesus into your life. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is we have to repent. We have to say, yes, I was going my own way. I I thought that was right. I thought that was true, but it's not. And I'm turning to Jesus. This man was willing to do that. But Jesus says there are others who think that they see, but they will become blind. The Pharisees understand that they're talking about him. They think that they see. They think they have it all together. And so the truth, this is the other side of truth, the truth is convicting to them and they don't want it. And so they reject it. Their hearts are hard and they are unwilling to listen to it. They would rather stay blind. I don't know the situation in your heart today. But I do know from talking to a lot of people, and I know from situations in my own life, there are times that I hear something from the Word of God, some truth, and I don't want to hear it. I don't like it. I'd rather not have to deal with it. I'd rather explain it away somehow. And there are times I interact with people and I'm sharing the truth about Jesus Christ and they don't want to hear it. And sometimes they even insult me. And you've probably had that as well. The truth is, only Jesus can open the eyes of the blind. All we can do is point him to Jesus. But there are those, at least for that moment, maybe God's not done with them yet, but in that moment, they are unwilling to see. But there are also those that when they hear the truth about Jesus Christ, they will see for the first time ever. And they will accept Christ. God had a plan for this moment in time. He had a plan. Jesus healed this man, and this man and the people around him saw the glory of Christ on display. Friends, whatever your situation, I pray through the eyes of faith, That you would pray and say, God, I trust in you to use this for your glory. Whenever, however, and until that time comes, between now and then, I will keep on trusting you and being faithful 
And can I tell you, that is one of the hardest decisions to make. People will tell you, being a Christian is easy. There's nothing easy about it. It's hard to trust when you don't like what you're going through. But God has these opportunities for his glory. We need to open our eyes to it. We need to point others to Jesus Christ over and over again. That girl in my history class, she needed me to interpret what I was seeing. Friends, every time you point somebody to Jesus Christ, you're pointing them to the truth that their eyes might not be able to see at that moment and their heart might not be able to express or accept, but you are pointing them to Jesus. And He can open their eyes. And He can open your eyes too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are often like so many people in this story. There are times we are struggling like the man born blind wondering when, when is this going to change? What's going to come out of this? I pray that we would be encouraged that you have a purpose in and through all things. Sometimes, unfortunately, we are like the religious leaders. We don't want to hear truth. We want to reinterpret it. We want to just hear what we want. And I pray, Father, you would confront us with your truth and open our eyes that we might see. Sometimes we're like the man before the spiritual leaders and we're sharing you with friends or we're trying to live our Christian life and we're being questioned and ridiculed. And I pray that you would give us the wisdom to point to Jesus over and over again. And we are all faced with the decision at the end of this passage. How are we going to respond to Jesus? Will we think that we see clearly but actually be blind like the leaders? Or will we be blind and have our eyes opened by Christ and say, you are my Lord and Savior and fall down and worship you forever and ever? I pray that is the case for each and every one here. In your name we pray. Amen.